Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have the privilege of welcoming to the podcast my friend, neighbor in Modi'in, and the international director of Gesher, J.J. Sussman. J.J., thank you so much for coming on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. Thanks for having me, Rabbi Silverstein. So you wrote a really important article that was published both in the Jerusalem Post and then in Hebrew in Yediot Achronot. Uh, talking about the question of how can we preserve um, the state of unity that we have now across the country um, after the war is over. Um, but before we talk specifically about the article, maybe you could just set the stage. I think a lot of times people aren't aware of the nature of civic society in Israel before the war. You know, what happened in Yom Kippur? You know, what was the energy in the country? So maybe before talking about, you know, unity and sort of how we maintain the unity, maybe sort of set the stage by talking about what was life like here uh, before October 7th? Yeah, so first of all, let me just uh, correct you slightly and tell you that uh, the article appeared in Hebrew Makori Show, not Yediyarach Rona, but that's okay. No problem. Uh, in case anyone goes looking for it. Um, I work for an organization called Gesher, as you, as you mentioned, and our entire existence is dealing with uh, Israeli civil society and trying to bring together the different sectors uh, in Israel and, and amongst the, the Jewish people uh, around the world. Um, ever since the election uh, a year ago, uh, there's certainly been an increase in the um, in the rift between the different sectors uh, in Israel that escalated uh, to dangerously high levels. Uh, basically, Saturday night after Saturday night. We, I think many people around the world probably saw the protests every Saturday night against the judicial reforms that were introduced just a uh, a little bit after the government was, was put into place in November, that's when the government went, went into place, and then the judicial reforms were introduced soon thereafter. And the protests that started against those proposed judicial reforms, uh, combined with the um, lack of movement upon, uh, on behalf of the government towards any sort of compromise, really led to dangerously high levels of discord in Israeli society. Families were being torn apart. People weren't talking to each other. They were calling each other traitors. There was uh, a threat uh, by the Minuimnikim, the reservists, not to show up when they were called to serve in the army. Uh, organizations like Achim Laneshek, uh, which means Brothers in Arms, uh, galvanized many people to oppose the government, again, in ways which threatened their continued service of the country in a time of need. Um, and on the other side also, on the right side also, there were certainly calls for uh, you know, calls against those protesting that they were traitors, that they weren't real Zionists, that you know, and whatever the case may be. So it was really dangerously high tensions existing in Israeli society. And again, my organization, Gesher, has been around for 50 years. So there's a lot of history that we've been witness to in terms of the uh, in terms of the rift between the different sectors in Israel. You know, if you look back at some major events, obviously the Robin assassination was one major event uh, in 1995. But I think since then, this is probably the, the biggest event that that existed that really tore us apart as a, as a society and as a country. Was your sense, um, both personally and also institutionally, that there's something unique here? You mentioned that um, you know Gesher's been around for a long time, so I'm sure you remember from our youth that uh, you know the videos of the protests during the time of Oslo. Right? We're not simple protests, right? Israeli society really was divided in a very intense way. Um, but I think you know, my sense is, is that there was something unique here um, to the extent that it really went to spaces that we hadn't seen before. Akadekach that you know, on Yom Kippur, which happened, you know, only, which took place only a few days before uh, Simchas Torah, you had uh, you know, protests and people you know, disrupting davening right, on, uh, in Tel Aviv. And just out of curiosity, do, do you have a sense among your organization that, there, that this really was something unique, that this is actually somehow different than what we experienced, let's say, during the, during the protests of Oslo? 
Yeah, so I think the levels and the depth are certainly deeper and uh, and higher than than we've experienced in the past. And we can ascribe that to many things, but, you know, whether it, it, there's a worldwide trend to protest becoming more, you know, social media, for example. Social media certainly serves to egg on these protests and to create visuals so that they can then go back and share to uh, to their peers or their friends or their families back on social media. So, for example, you said, you mentioned the uh, Yom Kippur incident in Tel Aviv where people came to an outdoor minion which had been in existence for a few years, but because there was separation of genders, the machitza put up in uh, in, in the public square uh, against a court ruling that basically said that there shouldn't be a physical machitza or an unmovable machitza. I want to be careful on how I uh, relate what the actual ruling was. Um, I'll probably mess it up. But basically, uh, and then somebody came in and started tearing it apart and tearing apart Sidurim. So there was, there was certainly a feeling that there was nothing left that what we call a, uh, you know, Harak uh, Even Even the things that were, everyone assumed were consented uh, not to be touched, like serving in the army or like Yom Kippur, even those red lines were crossed. So it, there was uh, an escalation to a level, I think, that we haven't seen here in Israel. Yeah, so, so in that way, I think it was good. And then October 7th happens and all of a sudden, you know, there's a significant change, right? All of a sudden we see that, you know, despite the fears that uh, the pilots wouldn't serve, right? And and the, the statements that Israeli society was being ripped apart, all of a sudden an amazing thing happens. And, you know, this is something that all Israelis experience is that all of a sudden there's a, a dramatic change and all of a sudden you feel an extraordinary sense of unity. And the unity isn't only theoretical, right? There, there are volunteer projects and all different types of you know, things going on that bring the different factions together. I even saw a picture online of Moshe Capel, who's the, the leader of Kohelet and one of the, the the intellectual drivers of the additional reform, working together with somebody from Achim Neshek, who obviously are sort of like uh, his bar plugta in the world of uh, political discourse. Uh, maybe you could describe for a minute some examples of that. In other words, what happens on October 7th in terms of the changing civic discourse? If on October 6th, or let's say a few week, weeks before, you know, there's mechitzas being uh, torn in, Yom Ki- in, uh, in Tel Aviv, and there's a fight over the nature of prayer in the public space. What happens after October 7th? How does the dynamic change? So, so maybe the best way to describe it in one sentence is, is so someone on the first week, someone during the first week after the war started, came over to me and said, so did Hamas do your job for you? Wow. In a sick way. Uh, with a high cost, obviously. Tremendously high cost. But, but I think that talks to the unity that we all felt uh, immediately, almost. Um, when when Hamas, our mutual and our enemy, mutual meaning mutual for everybody here in Israel, really um, attacked us and attacked at the very core of Israel. They attacked a consensus uh, uh, Israel, in other words, not not in Judea and Samaria, not in Shtachim, but but rather the south of Israel, which everyone believes is part of Israel, including internationally, and uh, they did it unprovoked. And they did it on uh, Achad. And I think all of those factors played into the uh, the response by all of Israeli society to unite immediately to fight back against our enemy. Uh, because there was no question that this was an enemy and a ruthless enemy that we all had to fight uh, against. So, so all of those organizations that we spoke about, first of all, before we get to the organizations, the army itself. <clears throat> you know, you have people serving in the army who come from very, very different backgrounds, religious and secular, kibbutzim and, and uh, yishuvim and cities and, and whatever the case may be. We can get back to the Haredi question maybe a little bit later, but but certainly uh, from from the Jewish part of Israeli society and, and even the non-Jewish part of Israeli society, there's significant numbers of people who serve together and serve together with a common goal and common purpose to defend the state of Israel and to, uh, and to attack its enemies. Um, and and if you harken back to the article that I think I related an anecdote in there, which talks about some guy sitting in a tank and from, you know, again, religious guy, a very, very secular guy, sitting in the same tank for 60 hours straight. And they start discussing things and they realize that they really have 85% of, of what they both believe in. They both believe in the same things. And the other 15%, they were having a, a very cordial conversation about their disagreement, exactly the way we would expect a normal healthy society to operate, so much so that they got angry at all of those forces that had existed, which made them believe that the other was some sort of enemy to the other, to, to themselves. 
and and I hear stories about that kind of uh, that kind of um, scenario again and again and again. And if you look back at the civil organizations that we spoke about earlier, the pre-October 7th civil organizations like Achim Laneshek or like uh, various Haredi communities, within minutes, they shifted their entire uh, work to focus on the common war effort, whether it was finding rides for Chayalim to get to the base of that, to get to or cooking hot meals for for the Chayalim or helping the wives of people when they came who were called up or whatever the case may be, seeking a... Uh, Equipment for for Chayalim, and and these are huge logistical operations, again across uh, sectors of society, that all served in the general uh, in the general effort to to support the war, and and it was incredible and still it incredible to see. I, I'm coming to you right now. I just saw literally before I hopped on this podcast. You know, Gesher, one of the things we have is a leadership institute. Uh, where we bring together in groups of about 15 to 20 at a time, uh, leaders from secular, religious, and Haredi leaders through a, through a course uh, to help better get to know one another and ultimately act as uh, social change agents back in Israeli society by working together and by working with those that, that follow them. One of the people who participated in the course is a woman by the name of Gila Nagar, who was the number two person in education. Okay, she participated a few years ago, secular woman, who lives down south, and uh, she was she after a couple of years, uh, a couple of years after having participated in her course, she she retired because she hit the age of retirement. Now all of a sudden you have these evacuees, 150,000 evacuees from the south and from the north, sent to hotels in central Israel or to the Dead Sea hotels or to a lot, and they have to rebuild a temporary life there very very quickly. So she was called up by the Ministry of Education to run the school system, the education system, in a lot. Within a second, she said yes on a volunteer level. And now we're two months later, and she's being awarded a certificate of uh, honor for, for having volunteered and basically set up from scratch an entirely new educational system in the city of a lot for thousands of students who were evacuated to them. And that's the kind of, of effort, and that's the kind of uh, spirit that we're still experiencing here, I think, today. Uh, across the different sectors of Israeli society. Now, this conversation is particularly timely because um, I noticed the other day um, President Herzog had an address where he talked about how it's so critical to maintain the unity, um, and he wanted to ensure that there wasn't political infighting uh, during the war. And uh, in your article, you have a really interesting thesis where you talk about how um, we can sort of look at the military failures and try and learn lessons from the military failures, then apply those lessons to uh, civic society. You know, the, the catchphrase everyone's talking about in Israel is the shinui conceptia, right? The chains in concept. That doesn't sound as good in English, but, you know, it still captures the, the dynamic, right? The chains in English, in I think the word might be, might be misconception. Misconception, exactly, exactly. Exactly. I'm so Israeli, I think, in, uh, you know, in those terms. But basically, uh, you know, maybe if you could just talk for a few minutes about what is this shinui conceptia militarily, and then Describe for a few minutes about your thesis. In other words, how would you learn, take the lessons that we learned um, from the military failure and then try to apply it to sort of, you know, answer the call of President Herzog and other leaders to try and preserve this unity, you know, not only have it be something that we experience during moments of crisis, but hope that we can see this as an opportunity to move forward and create a more unified Israel in the aftermath of the horror. So, so first of all, with regards to President Herzog's call, I obviously applaud it and, and think we should maintain the unity. But if I recall correctly, uh, he said, let's try to maintain the unity while we're still at, at war. And I think right. that's exactly, I, I think that that falls short. I think we need to figure out how to maintain the unity even after the, the war is over and change the rules of engagement or the rules of conversation and create rules, literally create rules of how we talk to one another, uh, not just in times of war, but also once the war effort is uh, is behind us. The, the Yom, you know, the, the Yom Shacharei, Shei Shacharei Abnul Hamaz, they say, right, the day after. The war, the war end. Uh, but to your question, so in the article, I, I uh, everyone was talking about the conceptia. The conceptia, from a military point of view, uh, while we still haven't done the full uh, investigation as to what exactly happened, I think a few things are already clear. One is that we were incredibly entrenched in this idea that Hamas was not going to attack us and was uh, more interested in managing the Gaza population than in attacking attacking Israel for, for various reasons. And I think 
we relied heavily on our fancy technological solutions like the uh, wall we built at the cost of billions of dollars underground to prevent uh, an incursion from from Gaza into southern Israel. We uh, relied heavily on technological solutions to listen to what Hamas was was talking about. And uh, we neglected or invested a little bit less, just a little bit less, in our human interactions with our enemy. And uh, we felt that the physical uh, barriers between us would serve us uh, as an incredible defense and our technological barriers would serve as an incredible defense mechanism to any um, incursion from the South. Obviously, that all proved to be false. What I tried to do in the article was to say, let's take those same uh, misconceptions that we found militarily to be faulty and let's apply them to societal Israeli society, as you know, maybe your listeners know or don't know, um, our educational system, I like to say, is uh, siloed. By that, I mean that each sector in Israeli society has their own educational system. There's a secular public education system. There's a religious Zionist public educational system. There's an educational system for the Arab population of Israel, an educational system for the Haredi population of Israel. So at least four separate educational systems. Minimally. Minimally. Uh, right. yeah. You can break each one of those down even further. Exactly. Right. But for example, myself, who sends my children to the religious Zionist educational system, if I don't do anything actively about it, my kids will not meet a secular kid their age until they go to the army. Obviously, if they're not interacting with people who are different than they are, you develop certain preconceived notions, stereotypes, and they just keep on growing in your head because you're with people who are exactly like you in your own echo chamber. Add on to that the fact that many of our, uh, let's talk about the religious Zionist sector, right? Many of our people in this sector live in their own yeshuvim with no one else living in those yeshuvim, no secular people living in those yeshuvim. Even myself, who live in, lives in the city, Modian, my community is almost entirely religious Zionist. Now, I do at the supermarket see people who are different than I am, and that's part of the reason why I live in Modian, personally, because I wanted that experience for my family as I brought them up. But it's an active effort for me to have to meet people who are different than they are. So that adds to the concepcia, if you will, in my mind. And unless we do something active about that, find ways to create a bridge, right? To meet people from different sectors, obviously we're going to have our own thoughts about who these people are until we actually meet them and find out that, hey, they're not really monsters. They have value. Maybe they're different values. Maybe we can argue and discuss the values. But they're not traitors. They also have Zionist values. They also have ideas for how Israel should be, uh, how, how we should govern Israel. They may be different than mine, but they also want the same end goal. Uh, maybe they see themselves getting there in a different way. And I think that we need to figure out ways to meet and, and spend time in uh, in respectful discourse and in in ways, uh, in safe spaces, if you will, uh, and do that much, much more than we've been doing over the last number of years and number of decades. Add to that again, I mentioned this earlier, the social media echo chamber, where many people spend, you know, the majority of their days on, on Twitter or X or on Facebook or on Instagram with people exactly uh, like them, right, who, who think the same as they do, because they, it's, it's great to feel that sense of instant uh, gratification that, hey, I got so many likes to what I wrote because, hey, all my friends are exactly like me. And we need to do things to change it. We need to actively do things to change it. Do you think that the most important space for this type of change is DAPCA in the educational framework? I can imagine somebody being resistant and saying, well, you know, I'm happy to have dialogue, let's say, for example, groups of adults to get together. But, you know, especially more insular communities, like religious communities, you can imagine someone saying that, you know, the more integration that we have uh, between different communities, right, the more we get a sense that, well, you know, there's a possibility of our community, you know, sort of um, incorporating some of the values from other communities that we find to be problematic. Um, you know, one of the reasons why communities do have their own educational frameworks is because obviously the years in which we're educating are the formative years. So do you think that specifically in those formative years where we have to create a framework whereby 
you know, students understand that there's a broader world out there and it's not, you know, exclusively made up of people just like them? Or can you imagine somebody, you know, pushing back a little bit and saying, well, JJ, I'm okay with that, you know, in the army, you know, the army people are older, they're more mature, et cetera. But specifically when we're talking about younger kids, right, maybe there is some value to sort of raising them and having them be a little more insulated to sort of fortify their identity and only later on have this sort of broader interactive dynamic. Uh, it's a great question. I think it's a question of uh, of minun of uh, what's the word English word for minun? Now I forgot the uh, um, uh, dosages. It's a question yeah. of how much. I, right. I think you're right. I think we need to, like with anything, I think, I think you need to strengthen yourself, strengthen your own ideology, strengthen your own values, and then go out and meet with people who are different, so that you're. So, but oftentimes when you do that, and I see this in our Geshe seminars that we do, you know, we bring high. We don't we don't deal with elementary school. Kids, okay, for exactly that reason, we do deal with high school kids, and usually in the later years of high school. But I see it happen all the time that you bring a, a religious Zionist high school together for a weekend, a secular high school, and and there are these fears that you're that you're articulating right now. They exist that maybe they're going to become like the secular. Maybe by the way, let me tell you a little crazy secret. Our numbers aren't that good right now in our religious Zionist educational system of the numbers who are you know share who are leaving our ranks. So. Something's not working right now. That needs to be fixed. I'm not sure if exposing our kids to secular kids will accelerate, like you're asking, the numbers of, of religious Zionist Jews leaving our community or will actually strengthen our numbers. I think the jury's out. But that being said, I, we see this uh, on these uh, on these weekend seminars, other types of seminars that we do, where there are the fears when, when they go in. But actually what happens is the exact opposite. The Each side become strengthened in their own ideology while recognizing that there can be people who are different than they are who also have a different ideology. And I can't talk to them. And I can't have a relationship with them without sacrificing my own ideology. So I think it, it creates, a, in my personal opinion, it creates a healthier public sphere and a healthier way to, uh, to discuss and to discourse with people who think differently than I do. Has Geshe done work specifically uh, with, let's say, young adults or let's say people in their 30s and their 40s who, you know, have their own professional lives and they have a lot going on. They may live in mixed cities, but they just, as you mentioned before, have limited interaction with people who are different from them. I know, you know, we both live in Modin and with the exception of my secular neighbors on both sides of my building who I do have a relationship with, you know. I really don't have that much interaction with uh, the broader Modin community. I'm curious, you know, obviously high school age is sort of an easy framework to sort of bring people together. But in terms of Gesher's programs, moving beyond, let's say, the, the college years or the high school years into early adulthood, let's say, you know, middle age, 30, 40, um, do you guys do work also with um, people, you know, on the ground, working, trying to bring, bring them together using sort of similar models? Or is there a, sort of a, a different strategy being used? when it comes to adults relative to, uh, to high school or college age kids? Uh, so the answer is yes to both of those questions, funnily. Uh, Gesher was started as an educational organization, working really with high school kids uh, for many, many decades, or for the first three or four decades of its existence. About 10 years ago, when we were evaluating our organization, we, we made the decision to evolve from a strictly educational organization to a social impact organization. And to do that, we recognized that we had to work exactly with what, with what you're asking about right now, with, uh, with leaders in Israeli society and with adults. If you want to really create impact immediately, education, working in education is great to create long-term change. And, and I believe it still today. It's, it's the key arena in which to play if you want to create long-term change and long-term uh, impact. But if you want to create more short-term change and short-term impact, you need to work with people uh, who are adults, like you said, who are influencers or who help shape public opinion and the public discourse. And that's why we created the Geshe Leadership Institute that I referenced earlier. We work there with uh, adults and the age ranges from, let's say, 35 to 55. But our because you can't reach every single adult, we the strategy we took there was to work with people who can really act as uh, agents of, of social change. So people who are what we call leaders, quote unquote, which basically means people who can influence others. So it could be a mayor of a city, it could be a director general of a ministry, senior journalists, editors of newspapers who are really influential in an outside way in our country for creating and shaping public opinion, uh, heads of educational institutions, of course, like, like we referenced earlier, uh, heads of uh, societal organizations. And like I said, we bring them together in smaller groups with a much more intense though, uh, uh, program. And then once they, quote unquote, finish the formal part of our program, we continue to work with them 
to implement projects back in their spheres of influence. So we'll continue to work with the mayor. One example actually is happening right now. We had already four years ago, uh, one of our courses, we had a few mayors, including the mayor of Ofakid, Itzik Tanina. Uh, and, and now, in light of everything that's going on, we're working with him to, uh, to run a conference in two or three weeks to talk about the day after. And the only reason why we're able to do that is because he participated in our course and he recognizes the need to bring all sectors together. His city, Ofakim, by the way, I don't know that the population makeup of Ofakim is actually fairly mixed. There's a Haredi element, there's a religious Zionist element, a Mizrahi element, and a secular element. So it's actually a very interesting city. There are about, I think, 40,000 residents today, which is actually incredible growth over the last number of years. And we're doing the conference down there, obviously to talk about the rebuilding of, of the South, but also to talk about uh, the Hosin Chevrati of Israeli society in general, the social resilience of Israeli society in general. So he's a guy who has a lot of influence, who can impact a lot of change, make a few shifts in his uh, municipal budget to create joint programming or to create programming which furthers the ideas of creating a uh, cohesive society here in Israel. And through him, we can really affect the 40,000 people in the city and hopefully even beyond that. So that's kind of the tactical strategy that we've employed in our leadership. Have you met any resistance from people involved in the program? In other words, obviously, like you have these leaders come together and it sounds like an amazing initiative. They go back to their communities. They try to sort of pay it forward and sort of use the same model uh, in their spheres of influence. Has there been resistance? Let's say people come to the program and feeling like, well, this interaction on the one hand is great. And on the other hand, it sort of forces me to sort of like double down and realize that maybe, you know, there may be uh, maybe some of my anxieties about the other, right, actually was more pronounced than I originally thought. I mean, it's obviously great to hear all the success stories. I'm curious if you have any instances where people felt like, wow, you know, I never really got to know, you know, settlers, Halim, and now that I'm meeting them, I realize that, you know, they are a bigger threat to my worldview than I ever discovered. So I'm curious if you have any sort of uh, anecdotes that sort of uh, push the conversation in the opposite direction. Yeah, so the answer is yes. Obviously, we don't have 100% success. Uh, I don't know anyone who has 100% success. Uh, our numbers are pretty good, but no, they're not 100, obviously. I would say right. uh, have the numbers. I can go back and look exactly what they are. When, how we measure success, we can get into maybe in the next podcast. Sorry, as I say. But the answer is obviously uh, that we do have some, I won't call it resistance, but people who don't subscribe to, but like, like you articulated, actually, that, wow, this is what a mitnachel looks like. Now I understand why I don't uh, get along with mitnachlim or, or something like that. Or this is what a secular kibbutznik uh, educational guy looks like. Now I understand why we're in such bad shape. But the way we temper that, I think, uh, is that because the, uh, the group is so intimate and we have a professional facilitator running the group and the course entails actually a week, an intense week spent outside of Israel, the group itself forms into kind of like a family and uh, and becomes very hard to say some of the things, even about the person you terribly disagree with. Uh, the the um, extreme to which you're, you'll label him or, or say bad things about him or her, uh, is tempered because you've come to know him or her as a fine person or as a fun person that you, after the day of programming, in New York, you went out and grabbed a beer with him or her, and you had a fun time. And that's kind of the that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the, the model of everything we do in Geshe is Mushgash. And I think we see this in, in certainly in academic literature, but certainly in real life also. Once you meet somebody, you see the face behind the tweet or the face behind the, the Facebook post, you realize that they're a real person. Also, they have real feelings, and it's very very hard to demonize somebody you know. And I think that's goes to the core of everything that we do to create Mishgash, to create a meeting between as many people from different sides of the coin as, as possible. Obviously, we can't do it with everybody in Israeli society, but if we find the societal leaders who can act as those agents of change, even if I think that their ideological view is diametrically opposed to mine, I recognize that we're going to have to share this little country of ours together, and I'm going to have to figure out how to coexist with that same person. So, yes, there's resistance, but I think it's tempered in terms of its uh, extreme uh, had they not gotten to know him. Does Geshe do work um, as well with Arab-Israeli leaders? Um, obviously, Arab-Israelis are you know, 20% of Israeli society. And um, I'm curious, you know, is, is Geshe also including Arab-Israelis? And 
Arab-Israeli influencers in the context of trying to sort of, you know, foster more positive societal change? So, so that's a great question. Like any organization, we have to uh, figure out where our focus is. Uh, we, as an organization, and by the way, they're great organizations. So some of them are our partners who work with the Arab-Israeli conflict or the uh, Israeli-Arab within Israeli society. Uh, we've made a, a conscious decision when we expanded our efforts to actually expand to the greater Jewish nation. So we do a lot of work with Israelis to get to know diaspora Jewry to recognize what it means to be the state of the Jewish people vis-a-vis the uh, half of the Jewish people who don't live in Israel, um, the other 8 million, if you will. Uh, and we do not focus on uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. That being said, some of our programs naturally have non-Jewish Israelis as part of the programs. For example, we work, we work for about 17 years with uh, every officer uh, in Badakhat, in Israelis, in the Israeli army's officer training course, because that was sometimes the place where people from different backgrounds first met with each other. So in those programs, obviously, there's some officers who aren't Jewish and who are Arabs, and we obviously had to, uh, we worked with them as well. Uh, so it's not a uh, it's not an ideological decision not to work with Arabs. It's more of a focused decision that we don't deal with that, with that sector of the population, but where it comes up and where we uh, interact with them, obviously, we don't exclude anybody and we work with them as well. I think one of the uh, most contentious issues in Israel is the issue of religion and the state. And uh, obviously that has a lot of different implications, but I think one of the issues that I think we all experience is that because uh, society is so fractured, so when it comes specifically to the question of interacting with uh, Haredi Jews and Haredi communities, so as you mentioned before, you know, kids can grow up their entire life, not only secular kids, but religious kids also can grow up their entire life and really have no interaction uh, with the Haredi community. You know, for my own kids, you know, how much interaction do they have with Haredim? They've all been through the religious Zionist educational programming, but they have minimal interaction with the exception of one or two Rebbeim who, uh, you know, will be Rebbeim in, in the local yeshiva. I'm curious if you could talk for a few minutes about uh, this theory of interaction and trying to change the concept and sort of move things more towards face-to-face conversations and how your work has played out uh, trying to create um, these types of interactions between the Haredi community and larger Israel. I mean, the Haredi community is such a fascinating community on so many levels. We had Yoshua Feferon, Rabbi Yoshua Feferon, last episode talking about this. And I actually just read an article uh, over Shabbos by uh, Leo Leibowitz uh, in the new uh, edition of Sapir talking about pop culture. And I've always thought about that because, you know, people can have their own views about Haredi community. But whenever a TV show comes out about a Haredi community, it always becomes like super popular. So, you know, you have people, you know, both in Israel and diaspora who are totally disengaged or, you know, disengaged to a certain degree from... Uh, traditional Jewish life, particularly Haredi life, and then you put on shtisel and like, you know, everybody sits around the table with popcorn and gets super excited to hear about uh, new shtisel uh, episodes. I'm curious, you know, if you could talk for a few minutes about your experience with the Haredi community, particularly uh, through your work in Gesher and trying to incorporate a, a closed community into this sort of larger initiative. Uh, so great question. First of all, on a personal level, uh, as you know, well, I try to uh, take my kids to challenge every Thursday night that I can. So, uh, to to help them. And, and, but judging by seeing the number of people in Menebrak at Moti's have challenged on Thursday night, the number of people who enter the Haredi community physically has certainly gone up non-Haredi. Well, I will, I, will, I, will, I will just put a plug in there that there is a chillin' place that opened up right near our house in Shilat, which actually may be like a, a Gesher hotspot in the sense that it brings, it's the only chillin' place I've ever been to, which actually brings together Haredi from Kiryat Sefer, religious and secular Jews from Odin and Mitna Khalim from the whole area of Dolev. So I think if Gesher ever wants to run a program, that may be, may be the place to be. I don't think I haven't frequented Bubis and Beer often. Uh, <laughs> we've been there plenty, or Hashem. A little bit more expensive, but certainly... A little more expensive, expensive, right. Exactly. But, uh, but you save on gas, so it's, uh, exactly. it's okay as well. Uh, but to your question, yes. Uh, the other... You know, when I said we established uh, 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, the Gesher Leadership Institute, the other thing we established then was a Haredi department within Gesher. We reckon that, you know, until that point, Gesher was really focused only on religious Zionists uh, and, uh, and the secular community. And we recognized then, based on the growth rates of the Haredi community that we were evaluating, that in order to be taken seriously, we obviously had to focus also on the incredibly fast-growing Haredi community. We have uh, a department focused on, on that community here. Before I get into what that department does, actually, let me... Let me say also that, as mentioned earlier, in the Gesher Leadership Institute, every single course that we do also has Haredim as part of those 15 leaders. So we've had some of the major 
media personalities in the Haredi community and uh, some some educational leaders from the Haredi community participate in our leadership courses, and we're still very, very close to them. But getting back to some of the direct programs that are specifically focused on that community, we set up a program called uh, Israeli Dialogue two or three years ago, maybe now. After COVID, we did a study of what Israelis thought was the most pressing conflict facing Israeli society. And it wasn't the Israeli-Arab conflict. It was the Haredi General Israeli Society conflict. And as a result of that, together with the Ministry of Education, we developed a program called Israeli Dialogue, whereby we bring Haredim into a classroom, 11th to 12th grade classroom uh, of uh, high schoolers. And we basically have a two-day program where the first day is our facilitators talking about general stereotypes and, and what they think a Haredi looks like and what they think you know, their, their general fears of Haredim. Uh, and some of the stuff you see, by the way, is scary. You see them draw a picture of a monster or, or whatever the case may be. And then the second day, we bring in uh, Haredim to meet with them and have a, a very, very open conversation. And I've observed a few of these uh, programs in the field, and they're incredible, incredible, incredible to watch. You see these kids asking any question they want. 90% of the questions from We've done it now uh, on a yearly basis in about 1,000 classrooms a year. And 90% of the questions are the same. They ask, why don't you work? Why do the women sit at the back of the bus? How do you view homosexuality? What, how, what's the dating life like? And, and stuff like that. And then about 10% is different from, from class to class. And once they see the Haredim answer the question, again, like humans, creating a mivgash, like we spoke about earlier, seeing that there's a person behind the ideology, behind the faith. So even though they're, uh, the Haredim are articulating the, the general Haredi view, why do they go, they don't go to the army, and why they view uh, how they view the primacy of Torah, or uh, or whatever the the issue may be? The fact that they're human and they're meeting them for the first time and interacting with them, and they see that they're real, regular people, uh, even though they disagree with them, they come out thinking that okay, I can live in the same country as I'm, I'm less fearful, and I'll back that up even with academic research. We brought we brought a. Uh, a professor from Tel Aviv University, who happens to be a Haredi woman, Professor Nakumi Yafet, uh, who did her postdoc at Princeton and is now a professor of sociology at Tel Aviv University, to evaluate the success of this, what she called the two-day intervention in these classes. And she measured, I'm getting too academic here, and I don't even know the academics of it, but she measured something called a meta-perception. Meta-perception is basically what I think you think of me. And to the extent that I think you think of me better, that is a, uh, 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 what's it called? That is a recognition that the hatred of me towards you will go down. Violence of me towards you will go down. So as these secular students or religious Zionist students are participating in this program, they think that the Haredi views them in a better light than they did before this program existed. And that will lead to less hatred on the part of the participants in this meeting uh, going forward. And we're continuing to measure that as, as we go ahead. So we have academic, and she's about to publish an article in uh, in an academic journal, I think it's called PNAS, maybe you know better than I do, these academic journals, doesn't really matter, but but that's an example, that's one example of a program that we are, that we are doing to help uh, break down the barriers and uh, shatter the stereotypes between Haredim and general Israeli society. Uh, you talked about, let me just get to the shtisel part. Gesher, like I said, has been in existence for a few decades. There was a initiative that started in Gesher uh, already a number of years ago called the Gesher Film Fund. That has evolved to become the Gesher Multicultural Film Fund because film, the film, as you know, has requires its own budgets, which are different than programming that, that we do today. So it's become its own amuta, become its own uh, organization. But they sit right next door to us, the Gesher Film Fund. Shtisel, the first funders of Shtisel were was the Gesher Film Fund. So it's exactly that uh, same type of uh, forethought to think about. You mentioned that everyone sits with a bag of popcorn watching the Haredim. Until Shtisel came along, the Haredim were always depicted as the, uh, you know, the loser brother, the, the sad case in, on, on general television. The reason why Shtisel was so successful is because, in my opinion, and it was also backed up by research, is because it portrayed them as regular people. You got into the nitty-gritty of what their regular lives were like. They weren't the sad case, the sad lost cousin who happened to show up to the to the meal uh, looking like a schlong. 
there were real issues that they were discussing. There were real interactions that were being seen and created themselves. So I don't know how they watched it, right? We're talking about how they got access to watching it. But created themselves felt proud that this was happening with Shtisel. I was lucky. I was privileged to actually run the first panel of a behind-the-scenes with the actors and the producers of Shtisel in Los Angeles and then in New York. Uh, and, and the room, like you said, it was incredible. The room was packed, literally packed with people who came, they became superstars, like you said, overnight after Netflix started started showing it. But I remember the first one in LA, one of the, one of the community leaders in Los Angeles came over to me and said, I don't remember ever an event in the Los Angeles Jewish community where there was such a cross-section of the Jewish community showing up. And that was the success of Shkipper, which was incredible because it portrayed a positive view or a regular, not positive view, of, of Haredi life. Maybe that's just more about us than the Haredi themselves. Right. Right. I think, yeah, I mean, I think also it, it, it's sort of like uh, very much piggybacks on the theme you described earlier, which is the Mifkash, right? In other words, when you watch Jisl, even though you're not dialoguing with them, right, there is a Mifkash. You're seeing a part of Haredi society that you hadn't seen before. And it does sort of change your perception of uh, of the Haredi world. Maybe we could just end by sort of talking about two other topics. Uh, the first one is the question of bottom-up versus top-down change. I listened to a podcast recently with uh, your cousin, uh, Michael Eisenberg, who was talking about uh, Israeli society and civic change. And he was making the claim that sort of, um, you know, 21st century change is going to come from the bottom-up. And the, the political leaders are going to have to sort of think about um, trying to channel the amazing energy going on uh, in civic society and use that to sort of further uh, political goals. I'm curious if you have any experience uh, working with politicians, right? Are there politicians who are very much uh, supporters of your work? Are there politicians that you're also bringing into a room to try and sort of break down their stereotypes? The reason why is because oftentimes some of the most divisive rhetoric coming out of uh, different segments of Israeli society is Dafka through uh, the politicians. In fact, last week when I spoke to Yeshua Pfeffer, I said, you know, it sounds like a lot of the amazing work he's doing is uplifting and positive, but then you hear some of the rhetoric coming out of Moshe Gafni and uh, other people in uh, the Haredi leadership, and it's, it's not exactly particularly inspiring when it comes to coexistence. And unfortunately, you see similar rhetoric when it comes to uh, non-religious or even religious Zionist politicians. So I'm curious if you also feel that this is something which is really bottom-up, really you know, working with leaders, uh, civic leaders, or is there hope also for political change, that somehow you, the work you're doing is also inspiring a new type of dialogue uh, between uh, different uh, political parties? Uh, we are not a political organization, uh, and I definitely uh, think that change in general across the world happens uh, from, from the bottom-up. We can look at some of the major initiatives or movements that, that have change the course of history. And I think you'll, you'll notice that they all come from people in, uh, in civil society. So uh, I, I definitely don't disagree with Michael's uh, analysis there. And I don't think it's such a new analysis. I think it's uh, something that, that's pretty uh, obvious across the course of, uh, of history. That being said, obviously people who sit in political positions of, of power have the ability to uh, change the course of government and, and allocate funds. To, to the necessary areas. So while I started off by saying we don't, we're not a political organization and we don't work directly with national politicians, we work with uh, local authorities or mayors, if you will, there are a few members of this current Knesset and this current government who participated in some of those leadership courses, for example, that I, that I mentioned, and uh, some of whom we were more successful with and some of whom we were less successful with, or when they got to positions of power, it's harder to find their their Gesher-like uh, statements. But um, but but I'd like to think that it, it's a combination of the two. You have to put pressure on and create the, the movements from the ground up, and you have to also work with the with the government to try to make them uh, attentive to what the people are are seeking. To, to hear. And I think that's going to be a huge challenge right now after this war. We're already starting to see it. We started off by saying how on day one there was a tremendous amount of unity. If you look at today's headlines, yesterday's headlines, and uh, you know, it, it, it's easier to see some of the cracks in, in that unity. So you start seeing the political campaigns. Political campaigns get very nasty, certainly in the last number of years, where it seems like the only way someone thinks they can succeed is, that, is if they put down or create a an end of political enemy and talk really horribly about that political enemy. Just see 
Twitter last night with pictures of Benny Gantz in the penthouse apartment of Al Waldman with a cup of whiskey and a smile on his face. Uh, clearly, the people who were taking that picture were looking to paint him as somebody who was having a fun time during war when we're still hearing about uh, people dying. Uh, whether it's right or wrong, I'm not going to get into it, but that's kind of what the nature of a political fight that we try to stay away from. So we part of what we're doing is also trying to identify who the new leaders are going to be going forward. And, and some of those new civil leaders ultimately enter politics, and you hope that they enter politics, because that's where, like I said, major change uh, can happen. Some of our programs, we get funding from some of the government ministries. So that, that's another place where we work with uh, political or government uh, entities as well. And I think that's, that's important to work both from the top down and the bottom up. So I don't want to say that we don't work with politicians. We're certainly not a political organization. But even amongst the politicians, the idea, I think, is, again, to create that gesture, to enable politicians from different sides to stick to some sort of code of discourse that we can all agree upon and call out the ones that aren't sticking to that code and hopefully hopefully eliminate that kind of conduct from the national discourse. One of the mantras that you hear periodically uh, in Israel is that 80% of Israeli society agrees about 80% of the issues. And it's only, let's say, 20 percent or however you want to break down the numbers where the disagreement lies. Um, in, in your experience, in terms of your work in Gesher, um, do you feel like that's an accurate assessment? Do you feel like that when people do dialogue, people do meet, people talk about the core issues of the day? Obviously, there are certain issues that are deeply contentious. Obviously, there are certain issues that are going to sort of you know, raise the volume of the conversation. But when it comes down to it, right, is there more in terms of consensus building that exists out there beyond uh, the divisive issues that get all you know, uh, the media and the press. Um, it's just since basically that, you know, that mantra is something that we sort of tell to ourselves, or do you really believe that that really is the case, that 80% of Israeli society has a shared vision? If we can sort of hone in on that 80%, it will allow us to sort of dialogue by the other 20% in a much more respectful way. I'd like to believe that, but here, I'll do an exercise on you right now, okay? Somebody, somebody did this to me. He said, if I mentioned to you in the context of Israeli society the word Shabbat, how long do you think it would take until you start talking about Shabbat, trans- public transportation on Shabbat? Right. It'll happen very quickly. Right. Which is so sad because Shabbat, whether you're secular or religious or whatever the case may be, or Haredi, has so much more beauty to it than whether or not we enable public transportation on Shabbat. And I think our, uh, I don't know if it's our Shittatim Emshal, right, the way the government is formed, which gives such a outsized proportional voice to smaller extremist voices has enabled that to happen or or whatever the case may be. I do believe that we do agree on, on most of those things, 80%, 80%, whatever the numbers are. And yes, I think that that's true. The problem is uh, in the political representation that doesn't always come, come through. And maybe I'll, I'll share one more anecdote, actually. When I first joined Gesher, one of our, one of our activities is uh, to use uh, Duplo, which I didn't even know what that meant. But it's basically those big fat Lego pieces, Duplo, for those who don't know, uh, to create a tow- two towers. We, we basically pasted on each one, of, each one of the pieces a different value. So Shabbat, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Seret Dibrot, Yom Kippur, Kibbutzim, Hatikva. And we have a circle of, let's say, 20 participants. Each one gets one of these blocks, if you will. And there are two towers. One is called the Israeli Tower. One is called the Jewish Tower. And we ask each one to put their block on the tower they think it's more relevant. So you think it's a pretty simple idea. If you get Hatikva, you put it on the Israeli tower. If you get the Asarata Debro, you put it on the Jewish tower. And then the person who puts it where they put it have to explain why they believe that. So I was in one of these in my, again, my early days of Gesser, and it was in the army working with uh, future Ketinim, which is usually a good filter for future leadership in Israeli society. And this young uh, officer has the block that says Shabbat. And I'm like not even paying attention. I'm assuming, of course, to me, Shabbat goes into the, the Jewish tower. And all of a sudden, I see the officer put it on the Israeli tower. And then it gets to, to the facilitator asking this officer, why would you put it on the Israeli tower? And then you hear the officer literally get angry and say, if they take away my ability to go to the beach on Shabbat, these crazy religious people, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. My Shabbat is so critical to me because otherwise I don't have a chance to go to the beach. I can't go during the week. And that's why. And I'm sitting there saying, wow, you know, what have we done to poison 
the discourse in Israeli society so much that we can't have a normal conversation about the general values of, of creating one day a week where where we don't where we don't work. And to recognize that's a Jewish value before you get to whether or not it's a religious value. And I think to me, that just made me double down on the work that we do, that we have so much work to do, both on the ignorance that exists in Israeli society, but more so on the barriers that we've put up to others in Israeli society that enables that that ignorance and that that enmity and that hatred uh, from one group towards towards another group. And I think that's the challenge that today, after the war, I see as as obviously there's the security challenge, but on a societal level, we don't deal with a societal challenge that exists immediately and in full force, the security challenges will be that much harder to overcome. The only way we can succeed is if we're we're unified, which doesn't mean that we're uniform in the start, but that we're unified and recognize that we have a shared past and that we have a common destiny going forward. This was an amazing dialogue. I know that if people want to read um, some of your writings, I looked online beforehand, you can Google J.J. Sussman Jerusalem Post and you have a lot of op-eds there. If people want to learn more about the work you do, the work Gesher does, what's the best place to go to find out more about these types of exciting initiatives? So we have a website uh, in Hebrew, gesher.co.il and in English, gesherusa.org. You can get to each one of them from the English to the Hebrew or the Hebrew to the English. Or you're invited to reach out to me personally, jj at gesher.co.il. If I don't respond, it's because I know you came from uh, David Silverstein. <laughs> all right, JJ, thank you so much. This was uh, an amazing dialogue, and I uh, hope that all the amazing work that you guys are doing at Gesher continues to enable the unity that we're experiencing right now in Israel to continue not only during the war, but uh, after the war as well. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.